All right, good morning, everyone. Uh, today is December 26th, 2020, the day after Christmas. Um, I want to take a moment and uh, do a unique podcast today. I tried to do it yesterday, but I wanted to get all my facts straight, all my notes clear and all of this sort of thing. So it kind of filtered over into the next day. But I want to give you... Uh, a lesson today on Christmas, and I t- entitled this The True Story of Christmas, because there's many things about Christmas that we take for granted, that we assume, that we have been taught or have heard over the years, uh, that in fact is not true about Christmas. Now, I'm not here to rewrite the story of Christmas. I mean, the, the message is all the same, in that Christ was born in human flesh, God became flesh, uh, to die on the cross, shed his blood, for the sins of the world, his blood is pure and holy, and it is acceptable to God to pay for all the sins of the world. We just have to accept it. But the problem comes in the fact that man uh, believes within himself or has taught himself or has been deceived by Satan to think that we have to earn the right. And there is no way to earn that right. Uh, the Bible simply says that salvation is the gift of God. Uh, he offers it, he set it in plan, he put he put it in motion, all we have to do is accept it, and, and that's the hardest thing for us to accept. So, uh, in having said that, I, I've had this thought on my mind uh, for a little while, and I wanted to give it to you, and we're basically going to look at two portions of scripture. Um, one, of course, is Luke chapter 2, and the other will be Matthew chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 is the one that we refer to in most uh, Christmas plays and, and things of that nature. It tells the story of the birth of Christ. And rightly so. Um, if you look at the beginning of the book of Luke, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, he explains there where uh, he's writing a record of things that they witness, things that they understand from the very first, and uh, things that, that, that we need to know of a certainty. And so this guy of of any of the writers in the Gospels is the fact checker. He he is the one that checks off the little list to make sure everything's right. Uh, and and I don't of course know him personally. I will one day, but uh, you can kind of get the sense that everything he records, um, uh, he's checked the sources, he's rechecked the sources, and before he puts pen to paper, theoretically. Uh, he made sure that it is exactly right, that it's completely accurate. So what I'm going to do is, is break this up into two parts. I'm going to uh, look at the first uh, section here, Luke chapter 2, and I'm going to say this is Luke's story, and then the second part will be Matthew's story. And, and there's a reason and purpose to that, but uh, one of the reasons I, that I call it the true story of Christmas, I've <laughs> I, I guess there's something that just gets to me. Um and don't get me wrong, okay, I, I'm not criticizing any of it, I'm just pointing things out, uh, but even in our uh, Christmas carols that we sing, uh, almost every one of them, to a point, have a statement or a phrase in them that is not bibli- bib- yeah, mm-hmm, biblically accurate. Uh, we Three Kings of Orient are. Uh, and, and we'll cover that in this lesson. There are several issues with that phrase alone. Uh, Joy to the World. This is a song that we all sing. 
Uh, it is not a Christmas song. It is a millennial reign song. It talks about, uh, you know, Christ return and receive uh, her kingdom, his kingdom and that sort of thing. Uh, another one is the first Noel. It uses a phrase that the shepherds were laying out there in the fields with the sheep on a cold winter's night. Have you ever made camp out in the middle of winter? Yeah, we'll get into that too. We'll cover that too. And it mentions three wise men. Um, another one is, uh, uh, it came upon a midnight clear. Now, obviously, we don't know at what point during the night it happened. Uh, but it says, angels touched their harps of gold. And angels sing. We'll get into that. Uh, the next one is the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Again, we'll cover that. Um, the next one is, Oh, Come All Ye Faithful. It talks about choirs of angels. Angels from the realms of glory. Ye who sang creation's story. Uh, Silent Night, even Silent Night. I, did, I really didn't think there was anything in there. And, I, and I've got a songbook here. Uh, being the church choir director, of course, I have one here for research purposes and things of that nature. Can't stand up there in the front and lead if I don't know it. So, uh, but anyway, Silent Night uses the phrase, uh, shepherds hear the angels sing. Um, of all the ones that we have in our choir book, the only one that i seen that I could tell uh, was biblically 100% accurate is Old Little Town of Bethlehem. <laughs> uh, away in a manger. I don't think I even covered that one either. I think it's okay. But uh, again, and, I, and it's not that I'm just trying to be critical, uh, but there's things you should know. I, I mean, we should all know the absolute truth. And, and I think um, Luke, as a writer of the gospel, was one who was like that. I think he wanted to have clarity and give all the facts as the facts. Now, am I saying that none of these songs should be sung at Christmas? No, I'm not saying that at all. We, we sing them all. Even O Come, All You Faithful, and Joy to the World, we, we do it every year. It, it fits in the atmosphere. But but again, my point here is, is I want to give you the accuracy. Okay, so Luke chapter 2, let's go there. And, and uh, for the sake of time, I, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but we're talking about Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. Luke chapter 1, verses, uh, or Luke chapter 2, sorry, verse 1 through 21. All right, and, and uh, maybe what I'll do is just read the passages as we go through there and talk about each one. Okay, uh, now Luke's story is divided into, uh, let me get it right here, two sections. Yeah, two sections. The first being Jehovah's Son is born, which is covered in verses 1 through 7. Uh, Jehovah's Son is born, verses 1 through 7. And then Judah's shepherds are briefed. That's verses 8 through 21. 8 through 21. If you want to divide that up like I do. Okay? All right. The first thing we'll talk about is the decree by Caesar. The decree by Caesar. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria and all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. Okay, so uh, there's two sections to this decree by uh, Caesar here. The first uh, we'll talk about is the law. The second is the location. 
the law and the location. Now, first of all, the law. Uh, the Roman Empire uh, ordered, ordered periodical censuses to be taken. I guess that's the right word, censuses. <laughs> A periodical census to be taken. Uh, about every 14 years from what historical records can tell us. And it served two purposes. Of course, the first was taxation. Of course, they had to um, get the money to run the government from the people. And the second was to find out who was eligible for required military service. Now, the Jews were exempt from military service, so the sole purpose of doing this in the Bethlehem region was to get the money. And isn't that always the case? That when it comes down to it, that's what it's all about. Taxes, taxes, taxes. All right, and now there are actual recovered historical records that indicate uh, that the nearest census decree to Jesus' assumed birth date would have been around 8 B.C. Now, if, if you don't know this, uh, maybe I should cover this a little bit. Now, our calendars uh, that we use today, uh, there is a zero year, <laughs> if you will. Uh, well, not really a zero year. There's one B.C., and then the very next year is one A.D. Now, there is an asserted effort, which has just about been pretty much successful, uh, to even change that. And what I mean by that is before when you reference a past year before the year one and you used B.C., that B.C. actually stood for before Christ, before Christ. And A.D. was a Latin term uh, that is Anno Domini. Anno Domini means in the year of our Lord. Now, what they're doing today is they're changing that. The, the years before year one, where we call them B.C., is now B.C.E. And what that refers to is before the common era. So you see how they're taking Christ right out of it. They don't want to teach their children. They don't want you to know that that's what that earmark is. Year one is supposed to set the day or the year when Christ was born. And they don't want it to be associated to that at all. So they come up with a whole new system. Okay, so maybe that explains a little bit. But there are different calendars. There's the uh, Julian calendar, which is supposed to start from the day of creation. Uh, and, and just go year after year after that. I think it's up to, uh, let me think about that. I think, I think it's up to like 6,000 and something now, the year 6,000 and something. I believe that's right. Uh, and then the, um, uh, uh, Israelites had their own calendar and it was marked by 360 days in each year each year, excuse me. So <laughs> there's different calendars all over the place with different dates, different uh, uh, acronyms and that sort of thing. But anyway, we're, we're going to set ours at, at what was traditionally known as BC and AD. Okay. From year one being year one AD being the year uh, that was supposed to be set as when Christ was born. Now there is an issue with that. Uh, uh, some say the calendar is off a little, that it was close. It, he may have been born in 3 B.C. or 3 A.D. or 7 A.D., 7 B.C., kind of jumps around. But but that's what the target was. That's That was the intention of the calendar, and we're not here to dispute that today. Uh, we're actually 
focusing on the Christmas story. I'm kind of getting away from that, so we'll get back to that. Okay, so I had mentioned now uh, that there have been records of uh, the census uh, things being taken. <laughs> uh, but the nearest one to, say, year 1 AD, basically, was 8 BC. And you think, okay, well, all right, you've already got an issue there. And, and that is one of the arguments. Well, all these dates are off. It, listen, th this is the year uh, that the census decree would be made. Now, if you live anywhere in the modern world today, if your government acts like our government, I'm not talking about the bickering, but I'm talking about actions being taken, it takes several years for anything to get done. And as this was a revolving issue every 14 years, uh, considering that you're taking money from your people, this is not something that you just readily jump on and say, oh, goody, okay, it's tax time. No, you're going to mill around and say, well, are we sure this is right? Uh, how much are we taking? How much? Is All of this stuff had to be sorted out, meted out. Uh, so when it says that Caesar Augustus decreed that all the world should be taxed, this is not the entire earth. This uh, phrase that all the world should be taxed was the Roman Empire. That was his world. <laughs> okay, that's the world he knew. So that's what he's talking about, the Roman Empire. And the Roman government was just like any other. They had senators just like we do and all that sort of thing. So it would take time for that decree to filter down. There were no fax machines. There were no cell phones. There was no internet. Uh, so somebody had to personally walk or ride by horse, camel, donkey, cart, whatever it was, chariot, and, and give this decree from the emperor down to the regional commanders or regional governors, and then the regional governors would have to pass it down to the local governors, and the local governors have to put it out in the towns. They would have to put up the decree. They would have to say when the event was going to take place. They were have, going to have to say how much the tax was. So you see, I, there's a lot of uh, logistics involved here. And, and being in this... Uh, ancient day, uh, it would take some time. I mean, it takes time today as, as technologically so-called advanced as we are, still takes time. So you can see there would have to be ample time for uh, everything to get sorted out. And then there's this thing of, uh, uh, and it says there in verse three, and all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. Okay, now the way the system is set up uh, in America now uh, you pay taxes where you live at. Okay, I live in North Carolina, so I pay taxes here in North Carolina. Uh, if if I up and move next year to, say, Colorado or or Texas, Yahoo, uh, or anywhere else, then I would have to register there and pay my taxes there. That's not how they did the system in the ancient lands. What they did was uh, the tribe that you belong to, the family that you belong to, uh, where your ancestral heritage was located, you would have to go and travel back to that area and pay the taxes there. Okay, so uh, in having to travel back to their home city, we're told in verse 4, and actually in verse 5, we're given uh, a little bit of information on exactly what's happening to Joseph and Mary. Now, it says that Joseph went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth. So him and Mary were living in Nazareth. And this decree comes out that, you know, it's tax time. It's time to take the census. And so they're going to have to go back to their hometown. And it said that um, there in verse 4 that he goes back to the city of Bethlehem. 
And then in verse 5, we're given an extra clue. It says to be taxed with Mary. So Mary also is, as we're told here, uh, is of the lineage of uh, David as well. So she'd have to go <clears throat> back and be taxed there with. Now, uh, the fact that citizens were required to return to their ancestral homes is not something that was unique to the Roman Empire. Um, it happened everywhere. And I have an example here of one that took place in Egypt. Um, let's see. Uh, from a guy by the name of Gaius Vibius Maximus. Now that does sound like a Roman name, but it says he was a prefect of Egypt. Uh, yeah, prefect of Egypt. And uh, the decree he put out, <clears throat> it says, I quote, seeing that the time has come for the house-to-house -house census, it is necessary to compel all those who for any cause whatsoever are residing outside their districts to return to their own homes, that they may both carry out the regular order of the census and may also diligently attend to the cultivation of their allotments, end quote. So he's trying to make a cheerful example. Hey, do your duty to your country, not only to carry out the regular order of the census to be counting, but also to willingly and happily pay your taxes to your local government so that they can spend it lavishly. <laughs> That's basically how I read that. Uh, okay. <clears throat> now, in verse 2, it says, and this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. Uh, the, I think it's the Latin uh, phrase of this guy's name, Cyr Cyr Cyrenius, is Quirinius. It's spelled with a Q. Q-U-I-R-I-N-I-U-S. Now, there is this major argument that, uh, well, he didn't actually become the governor of Syria until 6 B.C. Um, and that may be so. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, the decree would have been put out in 8 B.C., um, certainly would have taken at least two years for this decree to go into effect. But even from that standpoint of the argument, uh, Cyrenius may not have been in name the actual governor of Syria until 6 B.C., but he did hold an official post in that region uh, from 10 B.C. until 7 B.C. So he may have been the uh, governor pro tempore, or however they say that, until he was actually named the governor. I, you know, he may have been the acting governor or whatever. I don't know. But anyway, he was in place. He was there. So there's no, no issue with that name. Um, okay, so that's covering the law there in verses 1 through 3. Now, in verses 4 through 5, we'll talk about the location. Now, we just mentioned that Joseph and Mary both had to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Uh, and this was a distance of about 80 miles. All right, now, considering we have cars today, 80 miles can be covered, uh, well, you know, going at 55 miles an hour. Probably, really, we'll say two two hours, within a, within a matter of two hours, maybe. Okay, stop signs, traffic, speed limit changes, that sort of thing, whatever. Uh, but anyway, uh, this day and age... Uh, most of these people, even then, they did not have chariots. Uh, they could not afford a horse. There were horses. Obviously, the Roman Empire had horses. Um, camels were probably expensive. Uh, so you're talking about people traveling by a donkey or simply walking. Uh, I have not mapped this out, so I don't know how long it takes to walk 80 miles. But I'd imagine it was maybe a day, two days, 
quite possibly three days. Now, take into effect what it tells us in verse 5 is that Mary is a spoused wife. First, that's the first thing to note. Now, you remember, um, by our law, you're engaged. A man will ask a woman to marry him, and you're in the engagement period. So you're not technically married yet until the day of the wedding, and then, you know, then you're married. Okay? Uh, in the Jewish tradition, uh, when you're espoused, that's the engagement period. You are legally married, but the marriage ceremony just hasn't taken place yet. So it says uh, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife. That is a technically uh, correct term. She was his wife. Okay. Uh, and then the next phrase, being great with child. Uh, <laughs> she's due to have this baby any day. So here they are, they get this tax decree, and he's looking over at Mary, and Mary's sitting there all swollen up, <laughs> getting ready to have a baby, and she's like, you got to be kidding me, right? <laughs> we got to walk 80 miles or ride 80 miles. Either way, that had to have been the most uncomfortable trip Mary probably ever took in her life. Uh, I know we have four children, uh, so you know we've been through it four times, and I know my wife was uncomfortable uh, later in the pregnancy, sitting, standing, laying, uh, it's just not a comfortable position anywhere. So, uh, I know some people have an easier, uh, pregnancy than others. Some have very difficult pregnancy. We're not told how hers was. I imagine it went pretty much like a normal pregnancy. Uh, we just, we just aren't told, but, but in the fact that she had to walk or ride 80 miles, sure put a bear. Uh, on that, a burden on that. Okay. All right. So here's the decree by Caesar. Now let's look at the delivery by Mary. And this is covered in verses six through seven. And so it was that while they were there in Bethlehem, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. She came due. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the holiday inn. No, it says in the inn. Okay. All right. That was just a joke. Okay. All right. Now, uh, the first thing to notice here in verse seven, it says, uh, she brought forth her first born son. That's another clue. What is it a clue to? It's the clue to the fact that Jesus was her first son, but not her only son. And this is in direct conflict with what the Roman Catholic church teaches. Uh, that she was the mother of Christ and had no other children, and therefore she became holy and became the mother of God and and all of this kind of... No, 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 no. Scripture disputes that emphatically. Mark chapter 6, verse 3. When Jesus Christ was there and they were astonished, will he say, they asked this question. Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Is not this the carpenter? You remember Joseph was a carpenter, so naturally his son was an apprentice to do that. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother, hey, hey, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon, and then are not his sisters here with us? So Jesus not only had brothers, he had brothers and sisters, at least four brothers, James, Joseph, Judah, and Simon, and we're not told what the names of his sisters are, but uh, he grew up in a large family. Mary had at least, let's see, four boys and one, uh, one, two, three. <laughs> she had at least she had at least seven children, taking into account there's Jesus, 
James, Joseph, Judah, and Simon. That's five. And then it says sisters, plural. That's at least two. That's seven kids, at least. Okay, so she had quite a few children. Uh, the next phrase to take into account is that phrase swaddling clothes. Swaddling clothes. Now, this comes from the Greek word uh, sparganoo. If I'm saying that right, sparganoo, S-P-A-R-G-A-N-O-O, sparganu, <laughs> sparganoo, which meant uh, to strap or wrap with strips. Now, originally, this was an oriental custom, uh, but it is carried on even today. Um, uh, I have a grandbaby. And uh, coming out of the hospital, she was all wrapped up real tight like that. I spent time in Germany. And, and listen, they would wrap these babies so tight they couldn't move. And, and it, it gives them comfort in the fact that just like in the womb, uh, things are tight in there. But it also protects their limbs, of course. And it aids in the circulation. So uh, there's a purpose for it. There's a reason for it. And obviously, it keeps them warm. Okay. Now, this swaddling cloth, as it is by name, uh, it was a square cloth with a long bandage-like strip coming diagonally off from one corner. Now, the child was first wrapped in the square cloth, and then the long strip would have been wound round and round and round about him. Okay, and that basically held the swaddling cloth in place, the square cloth in place. All right, the next word there is this word manger. <clears throat> now, the word manger means a place where animals are fed. So this not necessarily is specifically a feeding trough, but it could also mean a stable. But it's just she laid him in a manger, and it is most often depicted as a feeding trough. So uh, I think it is more accurately suggested to be that, and that she wouldn't lay him on the ground, obviously, of the stable. So I, I believe it tends more to this feeding trough where she laid him. Uh, it would it would keep him from rolling over. Uh, it would protect him on all sides. Of course, there's animals here. They're stepping all over the place. <laughs> she don't want to get the baby stepped on, right? Obviously not. Um, and then that last phrase there, there was no room for them in the inn. Now, here this census is going on. These people were coming in out of town uh, from all over the place. It's not like they were building uh, Motel 6s and Holiday Inns and Holiday Expresses uh, for all these out-of-town travelers, that's just not how things worked in that day. Uh, what they did have in that day and time was called uh, a con. In the Middle East, it was called a con, K-H-A-N, a con. Now, this was a one or sometimes two-story rustic building at best. There was no comfort involved in this thing. It was just a structure like put up at the last minute or just because it had to be done. Uh, one or two-story rustic building around a square common area. One on the, uh, or on one side of the square, outside the wall, would be stables for the animals. But in these stories, on the inside around that square would be like open lofts uh, where people could set up to spend the night. Now, these rooms did not have bathrooms. They did not have running water. They did not have toiletries. They did not have a complimentary toothbrush and a towel and a washing rag and soap and this sort of thing. It didn't even have a bed. It's, this was just a box-framed room, as you will. Uh, each person had to carry their own bedding with them and carry their own food. No, there was no complimentary breakfast either. <laughs> so you had to bring everything with you, okay? 
So you get the picture here is Joseph. Uh, he's got probably a, a nine-month pregnant wife in Mary. They've got this notice of the census has taken place of uh, perfect timing. Nine months, here it is. And they've got to travel 80 miles to Bethlehem. Uh, doesn't have a comfortable car to put her in or a cart or anything of that nature, I'm sure. Uh, it would have been a rustic cart at best, but uh, she probably rode on a, a donkey or, or had to walk. Uh, that's the only way they probably got to be there. Um, so, so there's that. All right. So, all right. That's our first point. Jehovah's son's born. Now the second point, Judah's shepherds briefed verses eight through 21, eight through 21. Um, let's see. The first thing we're going to look at, uh, this section is divided up into four sections. Uh, and it talks about the shepherds. First, they watch. Second, they wander. Or wonder, not wander. It's W-O-N-D-E-R. <laughs> they wonder. Third, they worship. Fourth, they witness. So they watch. They wonder. They worship. They witness. <clears throat> so, uh, first one, they watch. Look at verse 8. And there were in the same country Shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, the incredible part of this story here is that shepherds were told the news first. This is very interesting. Of all the people that could have been told, uh, obviously an angel could have uh, appeared before King Herod. Uh, it could have appeared in front of the chief priests. It could have appeared in front of uh, one of the scribes, or all of the scribes. Uh, it could have appeared to some prominent member of the government family, the royal family, whoever, but no. Uh, the news is told first to a shepherd. And the reason this is very interesting is that shepherds were considered the lowest social class of that day. And they were basically despised by all other classes of the people. And you say, well, why is that? Well, it came into... Uh, this following the rules of the law. They could not keep the details of the ceremonial law. They could not observe all the meticulous hand washing, the rules and regulations. They couldn't attend the temple uh, every time it was open. They had Somebody had to watch these sheep. And being out in the field watching sheep, although there may have been a creek nearby, I'm sure to water the, the sheep, they couldn't keep up with this meticulous hand washing. And I don't have time to get into all of that, but uh, it's, it's, it's on the verge of being silly uh, some of these rules and regulations and traditions that were around this law that some of these Sadducees and Pharisees extended it beyond what God meant, okay? All right, so they couldn't do all this, so basically they were looked at as unclean. And being unclean, nobody wanted to have anything to do with a shepherd, all right? Okay, so it says that phrase there, abiding in the field. All right, and here's where we come to one of these interesting points. Okay, now, Consider the location of where they are. It says now in the same country. They're somewhere near Bethlehem. Okay? Now, in the fact that there was a temple here in Jerusalem, uh, remember that this temple had demands for morning and evening sacrifices. Now, in these morning and evening sacrifices, they had to sacrifice an unblemished lamb, morning and night or evening, morning and evening. 
So they had to get these lambs from somewhere. And it wasn't like you just go out to a local farmer and say, hey, I'd like to buy an unblemished lamb. No, there had to actually be a group of shepherds whose sole intent and purpose was to raise sheep uh, to have a collection of unblemished lambs. It was their purpose to protect these lambs, to keep them in the best possible shape. I, I mean, think about it. You couldn't just produce a lamb in a day. Uh, they had to be born. You know, the mother and father and all they had to be bred and the baby born. And then the born, baby had to be raised up to a certain point whenever, I don't know what the age would have been for the lamb, but it was considered a lamb. It would have been a young sheep at best uh, or at latest. So uh, that, that, that had to be their job. And it it's very well worth considering that these specific shepherds watching over this flock uh, were for the sole intent and purpose of supplying sheep to this temple. Okay, so thus by telling the very shepherds who were supplying the unblemished lambs for the daily sacrifices that the actual lamb of God was born enabled them to be the first to see the one who would take away the sin of the world with one sacrifice. Now, yes, this would obviously threaten their job security, <laughs> But this, this was great news. And of all the people God could have sent his angels to give the message to, he chose a country shepherd. <laughs> a country shepherd of, of the lowest class of all the social classes possible. That's amazing. Now, uh, that next phrase, it says, keeping watch over their flock by night. So they're out here in this field at nighttime, middle of the night. All right, first thing to note, is that this would absolutely not have taken place in the month of December. It's too cold. These sheep would not be out in the fields, and the, these shepherds would definitely not be sleeping out on the field in the middle of December. The custom was to put the sheep out in pastures from spring to early October, and then put them in shelters for the winter months. So when December rolled around, these sheep would not be in the field. So whenever this event took place, it had to be sometime between spring and early October. Okay, so that begs to ask the question, all right, when was Jesus born? All right, now, when was Jesus born? There are clues in the Bible, uh, kind of like a timeline that you can look back to and investigate. So if you want to put your investigative cap on, we can look at it and find out what we're talking about. Now, if you go back to uh, the beginning of Luke, chapter 1, and we read in verse 5, it says, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias, of the course of Abiah. And his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And as you go down through here and read this, Zacharias and Elizabeth are the parents of John the Baptist. Okay, that's the mother and father of John the Baptist. But the key here is in that verse 5. Uh, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah. Now, the Jewish priests were divided into 24 groups, which ministered throughout the year in the temple. Now, this order of Abiah was the eighth group, which served in the temple during the 10th week of the priestly cycle. Uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 24, verses 4 through 5, and then in verse 10 tells us about this Abiah and why there's 24 courses. 
It says, And there were more chief men found of the sons of Eleazar than of the sons of Ithamar, and thus were they divided. Among the sons of Eleazar there were sixteen chief men of the house of their fathers, and eight among the sons of Ithamar according to the house of their fathers. That comes up to twenty-four. Verse 5, Thus were they divided by lot, one sort with another, for the governors of the sanctuary and governors of the house of God were of the sons of Eleazar and the sons of Ithamar. Now in verses uh, 6 down through, I think 17 or somewhere down through there, it lists each one out, but we'll pull out verse 10. It says, The seventh to Hakaz, the eighth to Abiah. So there's where you get the eighth course, or the eighth group, the eighth division. Abiah was, he drew the lot for the eighth um, section, the eighth part. Now, uh, <clears throat> the start of the tenth week coincided with the second Sabbath in the month of Sivan, which runs approximately, approximately uh, from mid-May to mid-June. Okay? So he served as a priest under the course or the order of Abiah, which was the eighth course, and this was about the tenth week of the priestly cycle. <clears throat> now, the start of the tenth week would have been about mid-May to mid-June. And remember, I told you about the calendars being a little different. Uh, when you try and associate the Jewish calendar with the English calendar or American calendar, or I guess, I don't know what the actual name of it is, but uh, the, the months are kind of in, in between each other. <laughs> so they go from a mid-month to another mid-month. Remember, they have 360 days. We have 365. So, anyway, getting to it. Soon after Zechariah returned from his uh, duties at the temple, his wife Elizabeth becomes pregnant with John the Baptist. All right, and when you go on down to uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 24, uh, verse 24, uh, we're given some more information here. Uh, we'll, we'll skip over, but we'll read a couple of verses and, and bring it out. So, verse 24. It said, and after those days, his wife, Elizabeth, conceived and hid herself five months. Verse 26, and in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Remember, that's where Joseph and Mary were. Verse 27, to a virgin, espoused to a man whose name was Joseph and of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Look at verse 31. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. So what we can detect from these verses here is that in Elizabeth's sixth month of pregnancy, the angel Gabriel came and told Mary she would give birth to a baby and would call his name Jesus. Now from the timetable of these events, the approximate month of Jesus' birth was to be around the time of Tishri, the month Tishri, which is mid to late September. Okay? Reviewing this. The conception of John the Baptist was in the month of Sivan, which is about mid, somewhere in June. Okay? Keep in mind, a baby's born after nine months. <laughs> okay? So, June. Six months later, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Gabriel comes and tells Mary, She's going to get pregnant and have a baby. So six months after June is the month December. Here, there's December right there. It's in the month Kislev. Kislev. So nine months later, then the month of June would be the month of December. So Jesus was 
more likely born around the month of September. He's a September baby <coughs> versus a December baby. Now, <coughs> excuse me, that asks us, begs us to ask another question. So then why do we celebrate Christmas in December? Why not in September? Why December? Well, it's because there was an already made celebration festival that was in place, and that's called the Pagan Winter Solstice. The Winter Solstice is celebrated in December. Now, what happened was when Constantine took over the uh, Roman Empire, when he became emperor of all of Rome, uh, and stopped the Christian persecution, uh, it wasn't that he was setting up the Christians because he believed... Uh, that they were completely right and everybody was wrong and all this sort of thing. There was an ulterior motive, and it comes out later. But basically what, is he, what he did was uh, he integrated, he mixed together the Christian and pagan holidays uh, to try and appease both crowds. Now, you, you can imagine, that, of course, we're going to get some sense of that in the next coming uh, few weeks here in America. For those of you that aren't aware, um, the election is disputed. It is not over. Um, I believe President Trump was duly elected, honorably elected, and that the Democrats cheated. I'm just going to say it. They cheated. Uh, there are false records. There are numerous uh, amounts of uh, ballots that they have presented with false names on it, with people voting twice, with some people voting multiple times, voting in various locations, uh, people that have been dead for years and years voting, uh, ballots that only have Biden's name on it, that have not been signed, they've not been verified. It's just ridiculous. Okay? So, uh, having said that, I believe that what is going on in the system right now is that no matter what happens, there's going to be a major uh, reaction. Either way it comes out. I believe they think that uh, if they go the way of the Democrats, the Republican following is not going to be so violent. Um, that's probably right. I wouldn't put my money on it if I were a betting man. But anyway, <clears throat> um, all right, enough of that. I, I'm, I'm going to get back to this. Okay. Uh, but anyway, uh, Constantine's trying to appease both groups here. So they integrate this pagan holiday uh, with the Christian system and they say, okay, we're going to celebrate Christmas uh, in December, okay? And he did that until he could eventually force his own agenda. That's what's coming. All right, now, uh, the next part. Uh, they, first of all, were uh, watching. Now they will be wandering, verse 9 through 14. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the, uh, and the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. All right. This section will be divided up into three portions. The first will be the reassurance by the angel of the Lord. The second will be the revelation by the angel of the Lord. 
And then the third will be the rejoicing by the angels of the Lord. All right, first section, the reassurance by the angel of the Lord, verses 9 through 10. Now, we are not told specifically which angel this was. Although we can speculate that since Gabriel's task was that of great announcements, uh, he could quite possibly be the one who appears to the shepherds. It's really not that important. <laughs> it's the fact of what he said, not who he was. All right. Now, it says here, uh, this phrase, the glory of the Lord shone round about them. Now, this is talking about uh, what we refer to as the Shekinah glory. That's S-H-E-K-I-N-A-H. The Shekinah glory, which represented the divine presence of God himself. Now, if you go back in the Old Testament, uh, the first time we see this kind of glory that, that I can recall uh, is when Moses goes up into the mount to get the table of commandments, ten commandments, uh, and he spends time there with God. And he makes the statement, Lord, can I want to look on your face. And God says, well, you can't look on my face uh, all because of his holiness because of uh, Moses' sinful nature, that sort of thing. But God tells him, he said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. He said, hide here in this cleft by the rock, and I'll put my hand over your face. And when I walk by, I'll remove my hand, and you can see my after parts. You can see my after, the afterglow, as it was. Now, there's a great sermon <clears throat> that James Knox has called What Moses Saw. If you can look that up online, that, I'm telling you, is a great message. Because, you know, Moses wrote the first five books of the uh, Bible. The Pentateuch, as it is called. And, and and it goes into that what Moses saw uh, was God's glory. And it talks about God let Moses actually see in the future. But he had this glow on him. And, and my point is, this was that Shekinah glory. And when he come down out of the mountain, it said that the people were afraid to come around him. He glowed for two weeks, I think it is, or two months, or something like that. Uh because he'd been so near to God. And we don't physically see that Shekinah glory today. Although I can say that there are people I know who who you feel, you feel that Shekinah glory on them. Yeah, certainly are. And and, and a little later in, in the history there in the book of Exodus, when the tabernacle was completed, uh, the mobile temple as it was, it's called the tabernacle, uh, and it said when it was completed and they prayed for it and offered it, it said that the glory of God come down and dwelled in that tabernacle. And that would have been that Shekinah glory. Okay, this is a glory that uh, people can't readily be around. It was dangerous. Okay, so here these sheep are. They're out in the middle of the night. They're out here watching their sheep. You know, of course, they're keeping on lookout for dangerous animals and that sort of thing. And out of nowhere, bam, this angel comes out with this humongously bright light. Now, you can imagine when it's going from dark to a super bright light, you're automatically blinded. <laughs> okay, it's just how it happens. Your eyes don't adjust that fast. Uh, we use the term deer in a headlight look. <laughs> Talk about confusion. This, was been, this would have been total confusion. They were scared to death. The verse there, it says they were sore afraid. That doesn't mean they hurt. That means they were afraid of being afraid. They, they were frightened half to death or all the way to death almost sore afraid and and in given reference to that it says when this angel appears now immediately you strike an image in your head 
of a beautiful blonde, not, no pun intended there, okay, a beautiful blonde with a long white robe, and it's got this halo on her head, and she's got those wings sticking out the back, and she would have just been beautiful. That, that's the way we picture angels, because we've been brainwashed into thinking of angels this way. This is not, uh, there may be angels that almost look like that. I, don't, I certainly don't think they have wings. And I'm certain they don't all have blonde hair. And considering the Hebrew tradition, they, they probably weren't all light-skinned Caucasians either. Uh, but these were not, uh, angels, you have to remember, are not human creatures. They were created beings. <clears throat> and some of these beings uh, took on a uh, form unlike anything we've ever seen. If you look in the book of Ezekiel, there's actually an angel described there that looked like a wheel with a bunch of eyes all around the outside of it. And how would you like to be standing out in the middle of a pasture uh, watching a herd of sheep and you're struck by this humongous bright light and when you get a little bit used to the light and you look up and there's this huge wheel standing with a bunch of eyes on it, what are you going to do? <laughs> I'm not saying that's what this angel looks like, but they have different characteristics about them. So, so we need to get that picture of the the blonde-haired, beautiful woman uh, with a white robe and wings and all that out of her head. There, there, there are no feminine angels. There are no actually male angels. Uh, actually, the Bible tells us they have no sex, although the angels mentioned in the Bible have masculine names. We, we know of Gabriel, and in the book of Daniel, we know of Michael. There's two of them we know by name, and there's many of them named, but, but they don't have a, a sex. But I will say that they are most powerful beings. And in every instance of the appearance of an angel in the Bible to a person, there is fear and respect displayed. These are scary creatures. And, and the angels almost always have to calm the person down due, an, uh, due to an uncontrollable fear. Well, why do you think that is? Well, again, think about it. If you're standing there and all of a sudden out of nowhere appears this big, huge wheel with a bunch of eyes on it looking at you, what are you going to do, right? All right, so this angel comes with a message. And this angel says, I bring to you good tidings of great joy, uh, which shall be to all people. So this angel assures the shepherds, tells them, hey, you know, calm down. Everything's all right. Uh, and so he assures them. And then he uh, tells them that he is bringing them extraordinary news that should be told to everyone possible. Why else would he tell them uh, it was great joy, which should be to all people? That means, hey, this is a message for everyone, okay? And that's a key to something that goes on later on, several points later on, if you remember that. I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people, okay? <clears throat> now, uh, second point, the revelation by the angel of the Lord, verses 11 and 12. So he says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. So the revelation by the angel of the Lord, first of all, is in regard to God's son. This angel tells them that this is God's own son. God's son. Nothing like this has ever happened before. Nothing like this. And so when this angel says, I can imagine just what the thoughts are going through these shepherds' minds. So part of the revelation is that it was in regard to God's son. It was also in regard to God's sign. Look in verse 12. Uh, and this shall be a sign unto you. Now, and you imagine when they're, they're the first picture they get in their mind, this, this is God's son. 
Uh, he's going to come riding in on this huge, with a huge army. He's got a wire. They're going to save us from this Roman occupation. That's what they're thinking. And the reason I say that is because all through the, the gospel uh, accounts, that's what the people kept thinking. They were looking for a Messiah to come and rescue them from Roman occupation. When they turned and saw this carpenter's son standing there with a plain face and, and, a, and, and a message that he had, they're like, there's no way this is the Messiah. That's where the point comes that the Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They did not see a reigning king in Jesus Christ because he didn't come with the iron fist and a sword, uh, golden helmet and all of that. Uh, he came as one of them and they could not see it. Those were different prophecies. They were trying to combine them all together into one person. It is one person, but these are two times that he comes. What they were looking at is what's going to happen at the beginning of the millennial reign. Okay? <clears throat> so the angel reveals the sign that they should look for. And it's not a Messiah in the form of a king, but yet it's a small baby born in poor estate. Going to be la la uh, this sign, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. All right, now here it is. These shepherds are looking for a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. And lying in a feed trough. And you think, what? I, obviously. <laughs> I, I always like to put things in there and think of different things between the lines. You know, one of them sheep had to be kind of, one of them sheep, one of them shepherds had to be kind of like Peter. You know how Peter was always known for putting his foot in his mouth. And I'm sure one of them shepherds, once they kind of calmed down and they were listening to what this angel said, and he said, God's son's here. Now here's your sign. You're going to look for a baby wrapped in uh, throwaway rags, and he's going to be laying in a feed trough. And I'm, I am I just see one of those sheep looking, or shepherds looking at another one going, what? <laughs> it's just there. It had to be there. What? <laughs> you just have to see the fun in it. Um, all right, so there's the second point, the revelation. Now the third, the rejoicing by the angels uh, of the Lord. And I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to stop right here. We're going to pick this up in the next uh, episode. I'm, I'm going to do it right next to this one. So uh, if you're eager to hear the rest of this, you can just get right into it. Uh, but I'm about to run out of time here. So uh, I'm going to stop there on this point and pick it up in the next episode. And I hope you enjoy this. I tell you, I really like to study and just look uh, for things that the Bible doesn't clearly just lay out for us, but it tells us. We just have to kind of look for it. Uh, so th this is a very interesting study. Uh, it's an amazing story. And uh, I hope you'll enjoy uh, the rest of it. So thank you for listening. And, and I hope you'll be back with me uh, on the very next episode. Okay. God bless you. Thank you.